and welcome to Military History Plus, the podcast that examines the history of warfare in breadth and in depth. I'm your co-host, Dr. Spencer Jones, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend and colleague, Professor Gary Sheffield. Well, hello, Gary. Always a pleasure to be recording with you. And this is actually part two of a multi-part series. We haven't quite decided how many parts there'll be yet. Looking at Winston Churchill and specifically the leadership and military experiences of Winston Churchill. And last last time here, we looked at Winston Churchill soldiering in the 1890s, particularly his experiences in Sudan and in the Boer War. And we actually left that story just as Churchill entered Parliament, being elected, of course, largely because of his fame as a result of his prison break in the Boer War. But we're taking the story into, of course, the First World War in this episode. And just as we did at the start of last episode, I think it's really useful at this stage to talk a little bit about the historiography of Winston Churchill in the First World War. And I know there's some books that you're quite keen to recommend, Gary. Well, yeah, we we like a bit of historiography on Military History Plus, don't we? <laughs> Absolutely. Can I start by saying that when I was listening back to the first episode of Churchill at War, I said there are two books I want to mention. And then I blathered on and only mentioned one of them. So the other one, which is by the same author, by Paul Addison, is a little book published in 2004 called Churchill, the Unexpected Hero. Now, this actually is, I think, the best short biography of Churchill. I'm I'm holding it up so Spence can see it. Of course, no one else can. It's uh, 300 odd pages and it's expanded out of the a uh, new dictionary of national biography entry written by Paul Addison on Churchill. And I think it's, it's it's a terrific read. It covers his whole career. And that's the one I would recommend people to go to if they want to get a, a fairly good, uh, sorry, no, very good, fairly, fairly brief, good overview of Church, Churchill's career. But when I was going through various books on Churchill, and the First World War, there's some really obvious ones that crops up. So, for example, Christopher M. Bell's book, Churchill and the Dardanelles, which came out in 2017, I remember mm-hmm. I, I reviewed it. That's absolutely a cracking book by a, a Canadian military historian. Robin Pryor's book, Gallipoli, The End of the Myth, which came out in, in 2010 or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. Obviously not just about Churchill, but Churchill features quite heavily because uh, Robin Pryor has worked on Churchill at various parts of his career. He did a, a really good book uh, on Churchill's world crisis as history. Which basically, he basically uh, digs into the extent to which Churchill's world crisis, great book we'll talk about later, uh, published in 1920s, actually reflects the historical reality. And of course, it doesn't, it doesn't. But it's struck me that no one that I can think of has done a book just on Churchill in the First World War. Have I missed one? Can you think of one? Well, I've been racking my brain before we started recording this episode, and a book that covers Churchill's entire First World War, I struggle to think of. And listeners, if you can think of one, and especially if it's a good one that we've missed, do let us know. Drop us a line on social media or email us here at Military History Plus, because for books that cover his entire experience, I am I am pulling a blank, I, especially, of course, his time as Minister of Munitions uh, from 1917 until the end of the war, which I know I, as a PhD student at the University of Wolverhampton working on that at the moment, I struggle to think of a book that actually covers covers that. And yeah. even 
Um, earlier on in the First World War, things like the Antwerp expedition, although I know it's been studied on the master's course at Birmingham and Wolverhampton, I, I struggle to think of a, a good single volume about Churchill's role in that as well. So um, if you're an aspiring Churchillian with an interest in writing, uh, finding a new aspect of Churchill's life to study, perhaps a book on Churchill of the First World War could be uh, could be your ticket to fame and yeah. we'll expect a cut of the royalties. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's it's a strange omission, actually. Uh, no one I can think of has done anything as has done done that book. The other book I wanted to mention fairly briefly is uh, by Jeffrey Best, you know, a very uh, prominent historian. This one's called Churchill and War. It uh, either followed up or or came from I can't remember the, the order. Uh, a, a single volume book on on Churchill by Jeffrey Best, but Churchill and War, I think, actually is is very good. Not least because it deals with the Ministry of Munitions period in some detail, which has been quite neglected. And this is one I I have I must admit I've been rereading in preparation for this podcast. So an awful lot has been written about Churchill, but as we have discovered, there are still some gaps. Sometimes some mm-hmm. some quite surprising gaps so well church of the first world war uh, i guess we need to have a bit of a bridge linking back to the end of the last episode and i think we finish with churchill entering parliament and uh, i just if i just say something very briefly about what happens in the the 14 odd years between uh, Churchill finally getting into the House of Commons and the First World War kicking off. Well, of course, he is a, a, a real phenomenon. He, he, first of all, he he's elected a Conservative. He crosses the floor. In other words, he he joins the Liberals in 1904 in part because he's a free trader, and the Conservatives, or, or rather, I should say, the Unionists, as they are at this point. Uh, are under the influence of Joseph Chamberlain are, are going towards uh, protection. This is something which uh, Churchill is very, very, very opposed to. And of course, the Liberals, it's one of, one of their big things. They're very opposed to tariffs. And he crosses the floor of the House of Commons. He takes up a seat uh, in the Lib- in, on, on the Liberal benches. And two things happen. First of all, he's widely reviled by his former Conservative comrades, uh, colleagues. And this actually has a really uh, significant impact later on during the First World War when he's frankly not trusted by the Conservatives. And the second thing is the Liberals, I think, are delighted to have such a a star and be such uh, an obvious uh, political prodigy on their team. And he very rapidly gets promotion. He goes through some some junior ranks. He's uh, at the Colonial Office, for example. Um, but in 1910, he becomes Home Secretary. And a year later, in 1911, he becomes the first Lord of the Admiralty. So in other words, the political head of the Royal Navy. Now, it's one of these strange titles that, that the Brits go in for, which causes enormous confusion. I remember someone telling me that they were doing a pub quiz. And the, uh, the question was, what was Churchill's job? at the beginning of the First World War. Well, Spence, you know what that is, don't you? It was... The First Lord of the Admiralty. Absolutely. But the answer given at this pub quiz was that he was an admiral. Uh, no, no, <laughs> no. No, an admiral is something, you know, uh, 
uh, a senior rank in, 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 in the Navy that, that deals with ships. And in fact, the professional head of the Royal Navy has a very similar title, the First Sea Lord. And Churchill sometimes describes the First Sea Lord. No, he wasn't that either. He was the First Lord of the Admiralty, the, the political head of the Royal Navy. Doesn't, and, and the point I want to make here is that Churchill's got a long way very quickly, uh, but also you know, within a few years of him making the top of politics as one of the, one of the great stars of the Asquith government, which comes into power in late 1905 and elected in a, in a landslide in 1906. Uh, he's one of, one of the great stars alongside Sir Edward Grey, the Foreign Secretary, David Lloyd George, the Chancellor of the Exchequer. But Churchill gets a war-related ministry very early on. And of course, First Lord of the Admiralty is a very, very significant post because Britain is engaged in a naval arms race with Germany. And by the time the First World War comes about, Britain has clearly won that arms race. Britain is, is, has managed to outbuild the Germans in terms of modern battleships. And before we launch into the First War itself, we need to say something about the great naval revolution which has taken place in 1905-1906. You know all about that, don't you, Spence? I certainly do. So this is <laughs> was a reference to the launch of the genre-defining, the epoch-defining warship HMS Dreadnought, which is the um, centrepiece of, of the, the era that we actually call the, the Dreadnought era as far as naval warfare goes. And HMS Dreadnought is such a revolutionary warship in its own era that it's easy to forget what a shock it was that this incredible piece of machinery came out uh, essentially what it is is it's a large battleship that unlike previous battleships or previous generations of battleships it is armed with all big guns it's armed with 12 inch guns in turrets for some smaller batteries extremely heavily armored it's very survivable and also it's comparatively fast it can go at around about 20 knots in battle maybe even a little bit faster than that um, it is so much more powerful than any other battleship afloat that it completely renders prior navies obsolete. The Germans start referring to pre-dreadnought ships as five-minute ships because that's how long they expect them to survive in a clash against a dreadnought. And so any ship built before HMS Dreadnought is now labelled somewhat derisively a pre-dreadnought and everything that comes after it is a dreadnought. And Listeners who might not be completely familiar with this, that dreadnoughts really are the epitome of a fighting machine in this era. They are quite simply the most advanced fighting machines in the world. Largest, most powerful, most heavily armed. They're the nuclear aircraft carriers or nuclear submarines of their day. And in fact, nations that can afford dreadnoughts are separated from those that cannot because it's an indicator of power and the, the ability of your navy to construct and man these ships. Uh, interestingly enough, when the HMS Dreadnoughts launched, there's a little bit of a hope in Britain that this is going to end the naval arms race with Germany. They're going to look at this and go, well, that's it. We can't match it. In fact, Tirpitz, who is the driving force behind uh, the German Navy, Alf von Tirpitz, the head of the German Navy in this period, he sees it as an opportunity because although Dreadnought has made the German Navy obsolete, it's also the it, large chunks of the existing Royal Navy obsolete. So effectively, the scoreboard has been... Scrub clean. Now you can go toe to toe with each other and try and build dreadnoughts. But even with that advantage in inverted commas, the Germans still can't keep up and are ultimately outproduced. And on the eve of the war, of course, 
though the Britain has an army, a small professional army, it's the Navy that is very much the centrepiece of British national defence. And it's expected that the Navy will play the prominent a prominent role in any um, forthcoming war. And culturally as well, the Navy is a bigger part of the British psyche than the army. If you join the Navy as a, a working class person, that's seen as quite a lo- noble, laudable thing to do. See the world. It's, it's something you might be praised for. Whereas joining the army prior to the First World War, or oh, you know, only the uh, only reprobates do that. People aren't, uh, you know, aren't capable of, of actually getting a proper job. But that's the army or the workhouse is a little bit it's between the devil and the deep blue sea. Price now, so the point to make about this is Churchill is very, therefore in charge of not just a, a military ministry, but the most important ministry, military ministry, not just in Britain but in the entire British Empire. So he's got huge responsibility and he's not yet 40. Thank you, as, as a peacetime minister, Gary. Difficult to, to sort out the sort of the flack, the abuse he was getting from his enemies. Uh, and indeed, the sort of legends sometimes created by Churchill himself and what we might call the Churchillians, uh, people who have been boosting his myth image since i actually think he he, he he does he does pretty well i mean we've already made the point that the uh the dreadnought revolution occurs before he gets into into power uh, and, and churchill he i think he learns the ropes of running the royal navy um pretty quickly now he always thought of himself as a soldier not a sailor uh, and but very rapidly, I think he sort of switches switches codes if we sort of put it in sort of, in sort of rug, rugby terms. Now there's this bit of a myth that he's the man who who runs the navy. Well, of course he is very hands on. That's certainly true to say. But if he is never throughout his career at any at any stage a dictator. He prefers to work by consensus. He prefers to work by uh, having a, a small group around him. And he does that with the Royal Navy. So he sets up something called the, the War Staff Group, which consists of, of him and uh, the First Sea Lord and various uh, senior, senior admirals. And they have a sort of form of, of collective decision making. So Churchill, you know, he takes the credit. He likes taking the credit, but he is, is aware that actually he's not doing it all, all on, on, on his own. Now, some person we haven't mentioned so far who really deserves to enter stage left at this stage uh, is a man who uh, has a a very uh, difficult but uh, interesting relationship with Churchill. And that is the the first sea lord, uh, Sir John Fisher, Jackie Fisher. Now, Jackie Fisher is the man who actually launches the dreadnought revolution. Uh, in 1906, thereabouts. He then retires and Churchill sets up, you know, quite a good relationship with uh, the first sea lord, um, uh, Prince Prince uh, uh, Louis of Battenberg. Uh, and he's the, the, the first sea lord who goes into the First World War, but he's forced out of office basically because of his German ancestry, his German name, and there's this terrible sort of Germanophobia going around at the time. And Churchill, when replacing Battenberg, reaches back and digs out 
Jackie Fisher from the retired list, and he brings him back as first sea lord in November 1914. Now, most historians basically think that he's past his sell-by date mm. by this stage. Certainly, that that that's that's my impression. Is is that yours? He's he was always a bit erratic. Mm. He's mm. now become extremely erratic, irascible, and Churchill. You know, I think yeah, basically shoots himself in, in the foot to some extent by bringing back Fisher. I would agree with this. And Fisher as first sea lord, as you say, Gary, had been behind the dreadnought uh, revolution. He'd been first sea lord between 1904 and 1910. And his work in this period is is very interesting, uh, possibly a subject for a future Military History Plus podcast, because he goes to great lengths to reform and improve the Royal Navy, which is, is burdened by the fact that the Royal Navy hasn't seen serious action since really the independent wars, so almost 100 years earlier. Generally, I think his time as First Sea Lord, although not without its problems, not without its controversies, is is generally seen as a positive. He retires in 1910, and when he's recorded in, in 1914, he's, he's past his best. He's in his 70s by then, and this is an era when the average life expectancy in Britain is, is you die in your, your 50s. And he's always been eccentric, as you say. He's always been irascible. He's always been difficult. And I think all of those have just become much, much worse by the time uh, of 1914. I can understand why Churchill brings him back, because he brings an incredible wealth of experience and he's intensely driven. He's the kind of person Churchill likes, high energy, very intense, wants action. But in 1914, I I think the war has has come about five to ten years too late for Fisher to really play a major role in it. Two things. First of all, uh, in defence of people in their 70s, having seen the folk rock legends Fairport Convention last night, uh, all of them in their 70s, I think. Now, they're absolutely brilliant. But your point is well taken that actually uh, a fit 70-year-old of today uh, is rather different from a 70-year-old of of, uh, 100 and whatever years ago. And the other point is to say that you're right that the Royal Navy hasn't seen major fleet service since the end of the First World War. What it has done, of course, is had an incredible amount of low-level service, particularly fighting on land. So it's mm. not that the, 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 the Royal Navy uh, lacks experience in war, but it lacks experience in the sort of warfare that the, they think they're going to get into. So big battleship clashes uh, in, in, in the First World, in the first world War. That's a, it's a bit rich of me correcting you on that, because you know, when we were running the, the uh, Wolverhampton MA together, I was just a sort of... Uh, defer to to Spencer on 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 the naval stuff, but I thought <laughs> I, would, I would add that a little, little bit. Okay, let's let's move on to the war itself. Now, Churchill's first and in fact a really significant contribution to the First World War comes in July 1914. So, war before war breaks out, there is a, a, a test mobilization of the fleet. So, basically, the the battle fleet is assembled off uh, off Portland. On, on, on the Dorset coast. And Churchill takes the decision more or less off his own bat not to uh, order the ships to disperse back to their peacetime stations, but rather to keep them in being. Now, mm. the only person he consults about this is the Prime Minister, H.H. H. Asquith, because Churchill knows full well that if he puts it to the, to the wider war cabinet, uh, there's a number of people who are 
you know, really horrified by the idea of war, some of the next best things to pacifists, and are a bit suspicious of Churchill's enthusiasm for military things. And he thinks that they'll say no. So he basically, he, he more or less does it, only informing the Prime Minister he's, he's doing it en route. Now, um, what um, Churchill writes is that uh, having ordered the, the fleet to stay uh, mobilised, we were now in the position, whatever happened, to control events, and it was not see- easy to see how this advantage could be taken away from, from us. And I think this, this is a very important point. So, so the Royal Navy goes into the First World War with a head start, uh, certainly over the Army and, and the other services. And this is, I think, a, an example of Churchill's foresight. So that, mm-hmm. I chalk that up one up to Churchill. I think he does well with that. Mm-hmm. Then we more or less straight away get into some much more controversial waters. Just that point about Churchill doing well at the start of, uh, right at the start of the war and uh, the looming July crisis is lumbering around, having the fleet mobilised is is certainly advantageous. And one thing that Churchill would defend himself with uh, in the years, in the 1920s, when his wartime, his First World War period was under serious scrutiny, he defended himself with, and his supporters were used to defend him, is he got the fleet ready. And this this was a very common slogan used by Churchill and his supporters in the 1920s, because when he took over as, as First Lord of the Admiralty, I wouldn't say that the Royal Navy was in disarray or anything like that, but it was grappling with a lot of different ideas about new technology, about its plans. And one of the reasons he got sent to be First Lord of the Admiralty was Asquith was not really very happy with um, what he was seeing from the Navy. And so Churchill could always deploy, well, I got the Navy ready. Yeah, Navy went to war in 1940, planning about how it was going to blockade Germany. Uh, it was going to close the exits to the North Sea and cut off German trade and was in a you know, fit fighting trim, effectively. So that was a really important thing for Churchill time. But here, I think there's a couple of things that are worth drawing out a little bit that go back to his early career. We, we discussed on the previous episode, Churchill absolutely loved action. And through his soldiering in the 1890s, he'd taken lots of risk and every single risk had paid off. He'd never seen defeat. And that feeds very much into how he's going to view the war. He's a risk taker by nature. He's a gambler by nature. And he always thinks the cards will come up in his favour. But he's fail- I think he fails to appreciate the difference between the relatively small colonial battles he's fought in in the 1890s and handling much, much larger formations in a European war where national safety is at stake. I don't want to diminish the fighting out in the uh, the northwest frontier and so on. It's deadly enough. It, it certainly is. But with the best will in the world, even if a British, uh, British and Indian forces defeat on the northwest frontier, it will not lead to the defeat of Britain. Whereas commanding the fleet... Remind of, of Churchill's own phrase written after the war that the commander of the fleet, Admiral John Jellicoe, was the only man uh, on either side who could lose the war in, the, in an afternoon. Now, Churchill wrote that after the war. But in 1914, I don't think he fully appreciates um, that possible risk that if the British fleet is destroyed or dispersed or somehow knocked out, well, the consequences are going to be so much more than um, anything that Churchill's experienced in his previous career. Yeah, that's that, that's that's spot on. And of course, there is an expectation, both in the Royal Navy and the Imperial German Navy, that the war will begin with this titanic clash of dreadnoughts. Somewhere they'll see. And of course, it doesn't happen for all sorts of reasons, not least that it's a hugely risky thing to do. And so 
it doesn't happen uh, until much later, of course, until till May 1916 with the Battle of Jutland, which we're not really t- touching on this occasion because Churchill is out of office by that stage. Spoiler alert. Um, but <laughs> Churchill um, never gets to preside over his navy in that sort of full, full-blown um, clash of dreadnoughts. What he does do, of course, and this is going back to the point I made a little earlier, is he commits the Royal Navy to to land operations, mm. and he deploys uh, troops, Marines basically, to to Dunkirk. Uh, the Royal Naval Air Service of airplanes and also interestingly armoured cars operate out of Dunkirk. This is when the um, basically the, the Mons campaign, we can call it that, is going on, and so the warfare is still in a bit of flux. Uh, he raises the Royal Naval Division. Which basically is 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 uh, a naval infantry division created partly from sailors who are no longer have ships to serve on because you've had all these old ships being scrapped as a result of the dreadnought rev- revolution. Also, some some basic Kitchener volunteers of 1914 are drafted in, and the the Royal Navy division we'll, we'll probably come to to later. Uh, but the thing for which he becomes really famous, stroke notorious, is that he sends part of his naval division off to Antwerp. Now, Antwerp, of course, is the great Belgian port. It's lurking behind the lines as the Germans come through Belgium. And Churchill, I think, is correct to identify that the holding of Antwerp uh, is important, both for British strategy and security, and also it possibly would act as a thorn in the flesh of the Germans as they advance. And so the, the controversy is really was it a sensible idea yes it was but basically the troops that are sent the very poorly in fact virtually untrained royal naval division much of it ends up going into uh, captivity at the hands of the germans they cross into the neutral netherlands and are in turn but they're out basically out of the way for the rest of the war most of them but churchill himself cannot resist going out to Antwerp and to have a look. Now, again, sending a senior cabinet minister, that's not entirely daft idea. But what happens next is that he, once he gets to Antwerp, he allows himself to be completely taken, uh, carried away by what's going on there. And he sends a telegram back to London, which is read out to the cabinet, basically saying, he offers to resign as a cabinet minister um, to take command of the troops in Antwerp if some if he's made a general. And apparently people just, his cabinet colleagues just laugh at this. It's just it's absolutely ridiculous. General Churchill, ex-second lieutenant of Fort Fourth Hussars. Now, this is very typical of the man, I think, getting carried away by the moment. And he just looks ridiculous. My favourite quote about this is when the telegraph's read out by, for Asquith and the, the cabinet, it's greeted with long Homeric laughter. So Homeric laughter, the echoing laughter of the gods that, you know, Winston Churchill, I believe, I, I think at the time he's a major in the territorials at the time, or he's, he's an army reserve, perhaps. He's, he's a major in the Queen's own Oxfordshire Hussars Yeomanry. Very, very smart regiment, of course. But he's saying, I'll resign my cabinet post, appoint me as a major general in charge of this uh, nascent Royal Naval Division. And I'm going to take charge of this. And it's such a Churchillian thing to do. He's not yet 40. He's 39 at the time. And uh, 
he's got completely carried away. And of course, he'll revisit this idea later on in his career about commanding divisions ah. and brigades and this sort of thing. Coming but, on uh, to that, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, two points to make. Firstly, that actually, historians have been quite favourable towards the, the idea and principle of Antwerp. So, Basil Little Hart, if he counts a historian, I mean, he, 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 Back back in the sixties, he he was quite complimentary about this idea. I suppose he would because it comes in with his idea of the indirect approach. But more seriously, Michael Howard, in an essay on Church in the First World War, is also quite uh, quite approving of the idea. But for many people, it seems that Churchill gets his first sniff of gunpowder, and it causes his critical faculties to desert him. So for a politician whose decisions has a direct bearing upon the, the lives of service and security of the country to show such a lack of judgment, to sort of rush out and send this, this uh, silly telegram back, it, it, it raised at the time, and I think raises in retrospect, some really serious questions about his fitness to hold this sort of office. Now, this brings me on to... Another point, I think, which I think is central to understanding Churchill as a military leader, that is that Churchill is a man who is full of ideas. He's fizzing with them. What he really needs is someone or a group of people around him basically to filter the ideas, uh, throw out the daft ones, moderate the possibles and actually support the good ones. Mm. And at this stage of his career, as the the Admiralty, I think Churchill is very badly let down mm. by his naval advisers. And mm. mm. um, if I can just add a little bit about Antwerp as well, um, one, as you say, Basil Lillehart, uh, Michael Howard both pointed that the, the, the idea of Antwerp, the Antwerp expedition, is, is a good one. There's been some work by Richard Olson, um, not published, but an MA thesis, which has looked at it too, and has essentially said that the principle behind it is good and it, it plays a role in delaying the German advance on Ypres, which will become important later. Um, one thing that to just mention is that Churchill actually comes to regret the Antwerp expedition pretty deeply later on. And uh, when he writes my early, or publishes My Early Life, he reflects a little bit on the Antwerp expedition. And he admits um, in 1931, this was a mistake. And he admits it, it was a mistake because he, the problem with the Royal Naval Force that he sends out, apart from the Royal Marines, and there's about 2,000 of them, the rest of the forces is Royal Naval Reservists, guys who aren't in the first flush of youth. They're not really trained for land operations. They're lacking all the things an infantry division have happened. And they get pretty badly chewed up in the defence of Antwerp by much larger and better armed German forces. And he regrets it and says he feels that he, he reflects on it, obviously, decades later and says, you know, I didn't, I didn't give these people a fair chance. But I think it reflects something of Churchill at this age, that he's drawn to this idea that sheer courage and determination and blood and guts can overcome the realities of war. And the Royal Naval Division fights bravely, but it's it's just massively gunned. And uh, and this is going to be a recurring theme, I think, with Churchill in the First World War. It also fits into a bigger theme, which historians have uh, looked at in recent years, that the idea of the heroic form of leadership in the First World War, which is the old-fashioned sitting on a horse, waving your hat towards the enemy, that's Churchill at this stage. Uh, what, but what is really needed is the war manager. Uh, 
an individual who's concerned with the allocation of resources, which Churchill is also later in the First World War, as, as we will come on to see. But, it, but in the, if like the first flush of youth or the first flush of war, he very much adheres to this sort of commander uh, 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 as, 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 as leading from the front approach rather than the war manager, which is just it really just doesn't work for this sort of sort of sort of sort of war. OK, he's back in England. Um, he's uh, to some extent, the, the uh, kerfuffle about his Antwerp expedition is dying down. And by the end of 1914, of course, uh, trench warfare has begun, albeit in a primitive stage. The first Battle of Ypres, which, which climaxes on the 11th of November 1914, the Germans have failed to, to break through. The Allies haven't broken through either. And so you get the beginnings of stalemate. And Churchill is really um, frustrated by this, and he's quite horrified by some of the stories that are coming out from the front line. Particularly, there's one of his friends, um, Val Fleming, uh, Valentine Fleming, who I think is serving with the, the Queen's own Oxfordshire Who's Ours, uh, uh, the QOOB, or Queer Objects on Horseback, as they're nicknamed <laughs> in the army. Um, and uh, Fleming writes to, to Churchill in very graphic terms, and Churchill is, is really quite you know upset about this so and being a man who has thought deeply and read, read widely about warfare he starts to try and put his strategic hat on and of course he's thinking back into terms of his great ancestor john churchill the first duke of marlborough and so he is not the only person thinking these lines but he's thinking on on the um on the pattern of using british sea power the Royal Navy, the most powerful navy in the world, to do something to bring about a change in the strategic balance. So there's a, a long and involved story of this, which I'm not going to go into now. Uh, both interesting, Robin Pryor's book on Gallipoli, uh, Chris Bell's book on Church of Dardanelles, they're very good on it. But uh, suffice it to say that the Ottoman Empire, having come into the war in late October, early November 1914, Churchill very quickly comes to the idea of striking against the Ottoman Empire. So on 25th of November, in the um, they're talking about the defence of Egypt. Churchill says this, the ideal method of defending Egypt was an attack on the Gallipoli Peninsula. This, if successful, will give us control of the Dardanelles and we could dictate terms to Constantinople. Now, important to say, this is only one of several Churchillian schemes which are fizzing around in that fertile brain. He's also very keen on the idea of using naval power against the Baltic. So one of his ideas is to seize an island off the um, off the German Baltic coast uh, to, to basically reinforce it, to fortify it, force the German fleet to come out of fight, and then you have this great clash of the dreadnoughts. Now, all of this is causing sensible naval officers to tear their hair out because the idea of committing battleships that close to the German coast in an era in which the mine and the torpedo have already showed that they're deadly to battleships uh, is, is quite barking. Talking about barking, Lord Fisher, uh, Jackie Fisher, is also coming up with various 
Baltic ideas at this stage. Now, the extent to which he's actually sold on them is a matter of debate, but what I want to make is simply that uh, the Dardanelles, that Gallipoli is a one among many of these these these, these plans plans doing doing the rounds. Absolutely, and, and I think something to just uh, to remind the listeners of is that in the end of 1914, the, the op- Britain's military options are pretty limited. Um, the army has fought very, very hard in 1914, uh, along with the French and the Belgians. And in the Indians, they've stopped the Germans at Ypres, which is a crucial victory, but it's come at a huge cost. And the, the, the guts of the old regular army, the heart of it, has really been torn out by the 1914 campaign. And it's going to take a long time to regenerate it. The volunteers aren't going to be ready for some months. Territorials are going out, but there's not that many of them. Um, it's, it's, it's acknowledged pretty early on uh, in the, the discussions after it. We're not going to force the Western Front. We just don't have the ammunition. We don't have the resources. We're going to have to try and support the French as best we can. So wh- where else do you look? And, and this is where I think Churchill gets so tempted because he's got this huge fleet, the most powerful fleet in the world. And it's actually doing something extremely effective. It's imposing an economic blockade on Germany that will, will not be broken. But that's a slow process and it's slowly going to have huge effects on Germany, grind Germany down and, and the central powers by extension. But you can understand you know, he's just turned 40. He's got incredible energy, incredible aggression. He wants to do something. Some of the younger captains are all for doing something. Fisher's interested in doing something. And I think he's got the, not only the, the motivation, but he's also got an opportunity because it's acknowledged the army isn't going to do much, just can't, physically can't. There's just not the resources for it. And so when he's proposing new ideas that, get the army or, or get Britain's military focus away from the Western Front, you can understand why it would be appealing to his colleagues. Absolutely. And, of course, among his colleagues who are coming up with varying ideas, at the end of 1914 are Maurice Hankey, uh, ex-Royal Marine Colonel, who's the Secretary to the Cabinet, who has a, a really significant uh uh, influence on British strategy at this stage, because he's one of the few people in the cabinet who knows anything at all about military affairs. And David Lloyd George, who by this stage, I think, yes, he's still Chancellor of the Exchequer at this stage. And uh, both Hankey and uh, uh, Lloyd George come up with ideas which talk about the use of sea power against the Ottoman Empire, among, among other things. And Churchill chips in as well. And, and one of most Churchill's most famous comments about how he wants to use British power comes in a letter to Asquith, the Prime Minister, uh, in very late December 1914. He says, um, are there not alternatives than sending our armies to chew barbed wire in Flanders? Cannot the power of the Navy be brought directly to bear upon the enemy? Now, there you have Churchill in a nutshell. I mean, Chewing of war in Flanders, it's 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 a good striking symbol. It doesn't actually show very much understanding of what's really going on on the Western Front. But allied to this bigger thing, we've got this huge navy. I'm in charge of it. He doesn't say, but that's the <laughs> that's that's the implication. <laughs> Let me do something with it. Now, Daisy, you're talking about something with the Russians up in the Baltic. You know, what the Russians are going to do with a rack to this idea is, is, is never really take, taken into account. But let's fast forward for a bit. Um, Churchill starts to talk to his senior naval advisors, including Fisher, 
and uh, two admirals who have a, a really big, not entirely positive impact on this, which is uh, Admiral uh, Sir Henry Oliver and and Admiral. Uh, sorry, Admiral Henry Jackson. Now, Fisher is really playing a bit of a double game at this point. Uh, that's my, my reading of it. Uh, he He's not keen on committing the Navy to the Dardanelles, but neither is he saying outright, at least not to Churchill's face, I don't think this is a good idea. And Oliver and Jackson, who basically are part of Churchill's inner naval cabinet, if I can put that put it that way, they are they should be given much more forward advice about what is possible and what not is possible than actually happens. And so Churchill, I think, to some extent, who is still, I think, an amateur sailor in, in this world, an amateur admiral, is being lulled into a sense that people are agreeing with him, professionals are agreeing with him. And all of this leads to fateful day 13th of january 1915 when churchill puts the idea of what becomes the gallipoli operation or the initial part of it to the cabinet and this is the so-called ships alone idea so the idea is that even though the gallipoli peninsula is you know by definition a piece of land uh he's actually only going to the the, the fleet to try to uh get through the Dardanelles and actually capture Gallipoli itself. And the, the really muddled um, directive, which comes out of the 13th of January cabinet meeting is, I can't remember, the, 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 I haven't got the exact words in front of me, but, it, but it's effectively the Navy will uh, take Gallipoli uh, in order to get on to Constantinople. It's modern day Istanbul the Turkish capital. Of course, straight away, and numerous historians have made this point, how exactly does a fleet take a piece of real estate? And even if it does, how does that get you in order towards, uh, get get you along to uh, Constantinople? So I think it's worth saying something about the Dardanelles at the moment and about the, the defences there. So it's a suspense. It's pretty strong, involving batteries, minefields, but not many troops at this stage, as I understand it. That's right. And here is something that, in a way, I feel some sympathy for Churchill. And again, um, as we discussed last episode, I was sort of, I can't help but be drawn to Churchill's sort of energy and romanticism. But as he's, as he's planning or thinking about this operation, if you look at the available information, and it's, by, it's not universal because there have been studies done on is it possible to get a fleet to the Dardanelles that have not concluded that it, it is. Um, but in the, the sort of heady atmosphere as it is at the start of 1915, looking at the state of the Turkish defences, they don't seem particularly formidable. The, the Ottoman Empire has been slowly tottering into irrelevancy in, in many ways uh, for a number of decades. It's fought a number of very unsuccessful wars in the early part of the 1900s, it's lost Libya to the Italians. It's fought the Balkan Wars against first confederations of Balkan states. Available intelligence suggests militarily it's shot. It's not in a great position. And of course, one of the things Churchill does uh, before the Gallipoli operation, or sorry, Dardanelles operation is launched, is he approves a preliminary bombardment of the outer forts that seems to just smash these forts to pieces. Doesn't seem to, they seem irresistible. 
uh, the, the Royal Navy is going to seem irresistible. And, and this is a relatively small number of ships doing this. So if you put a lot of battleships in there, well, the Turkish defences are going to be swept away. And given what we know about Churchill, a gambler, a man who loves action, blood and guts and determination, you can see why that's feeding into his mind, that this this could work. The Turks don't have defences. But the Turks have got a weapon, of course, that isn't a fort, and it's not bull, in fact, and that's undersea mines, which have made their, their pretty devastating debut in the Russo-Japanese War. When you've got things like the Dardanelles, relatively narrow, you put minefields in there, and they are a really significant barrier. The Royal Navy doesn't have a minesweeper class ship at this stage of the war. That's used converted trawlers. And that's something that Churchill doesn't give any real thought to. Mm, yeah. It's, and Churchill's not the only person, of course, who uh, has this very dismissive idea of, of the Turks. Ottomans, technically, but everyone called, called them the Turks. And Turk has come to me you know, fat, lazy, decadent, as opposed to the Young Turk, the, the government which, which came in, in, into power a few years earlier, which has seen as, you know, go-getters and what, what have you. But there's a sort of a, a dollop of racism in here. There's certainly, I think, that there's a, a massive underestimation. The idea is that, you know, uh, send in the fleet and Johnny, Johnny Turk will, will put hands up and, um, and, and not put up much of a fight. I think we can only understand the decisions that, that are made and not just by Churchill. I, either in terms of this fatal under, misunderstanding mis, mis, misunderstanding of the power of the Turkish military and their willingness to fight. And it must be said, that's the fact that it didn't do terribly well in the Balkan Wars of 1913-1914. Sorry, sorry, 1912-1913. That's in part due to the fact that the army was halfway through reorganising uh, on, on, on German lines. And of course, it's never good to fight when you're halfway through a massive reorganisation. And the Turks haven't done particularly well fighting Russians uh, in, in the Caucasus in 19, uh, late 1914, early 1915. But it's not true who it comes to the decision to launch ships alone attack. It actually signed off by the cabinet, so including the Prime Minister Asquith, including Lord Kitchener, the Secretary of State for War, also affects Churchill's equivalent in, in command, command of the army. It's a collective decision. So looking at to what extent Churchill is responsible for, in broad terms, Gallipoli, or specifically for the naval ships alone operation against the Dardanelles. Uh, Chris Bell has made the, the point, which I think is, is very fair, that actually he is responsible for convincing war council, war council technically rather than, than, than the units, to prove naval offensive that we know has little chance of succeeding. Uh, and the initiative for a purely naval attack did come from Churchill. Probably no one else would have come up with this idea if he had not done so. But he was not responsible for the plan that actually is then put into operation. That comes from Admiral Carden, who's the commander of the, of the fleet down at the Dardanelles. And broadly, there's collective responsibility. So in the interwar period, Churchill, whose uh, reputation, political reputation is in the, in, in, the, in the doldrums, addressing a meeting, almost certainly a heckler would shout, what about the Dardanelles? And he bears some responsibility for what becomes the beginning of the uh, of of the 
Gallipoli Kane. But it's not his responsibility alone, although many people seem to make it out that that, that is, is, is the case. Yeah. Now, we've talked about pre-dreadnought ships. And of course, that's another, I mean, from our point of view, I guess, sort of bizarre reason why the expedition is sent to, to the Dardanelles. Got these old ropey old ships. They're not doing anything. They're going to be scrapped. You might as well go and use them up against the Turks. And so the, the fleet that, that are sent against the Dardanelles are, are basically ships which are not fit to stand the line of battle against the Germans, with one exception, HMS Queen Elizabeth, uh, which I, I, I'm, I, I think I'm right in saying that's the most modern battleship afloat at that that's. It is. It's it's classified even as a super dreadnought, a lead ship of its class, the Queen Elizabeths. Uh, Queen Elizabeth, uh, Barham, Warspite, Malaya and Valiant. And listeners who are interested in the Second World War will recognise all those names from the Second World War, especially, of course, Warspite, which is going to be the most decorated ship, British ship of the 20th century. And anybody these are, would I think, suppose... Anybody would think that you're a battleship spotter. <laughs> well, we've all got our crosses to bear. <laughs> and, uh, interestingly enough, these are, in some ways, in some ways, they're Churchill's baby because they are oil-powered, whereas the previous dreadnoughts are coal-fired, the Queen Elizabeths are oil-powered, much more efficient, bring your engine much quicker, manifold advantages. And Churchill's been very keen to, to get oil-fired ships and also secure British interests in oil-producing regions in the Middle East as well. So that in some ways, Churchill can incredibly introduction of these ships and Queen Elizabeth, the leadership of her class, armed to the teeth, 15-inch guns, huge armor plate, very fast, very modern. But she's actually going to be accompanied by a lot of old, some, some very old ships, in fact, uh, out to the Dardanelles. Yeah, and all of this makes for a, a very interesting uh, collection. Um, so, so we've basically got this load of old ropey old ships plus a super modern ship up against forts, uh, mobile batteries, in other words, which can be fired and moved out of the way, and, of course, mines. And actually, in the, in the event, it did not prove to be a fair uh, contest. The plan uh, has moved away from the idea of, I think, what Churchill wanted to do initially. It's simply to rush the Dardanelles, send the ships piling through. Uh, and it's changed to uh, a methodical approach in which the, the ships will go in and reduce the um, redu reduce the batteries, reduce the forts. And here, I think, this is where it has been let down by Admirals Jackson and Oliver. Uh, Robin Pryor is very, very good on actually basically mercilessly curing what professional naval officers should have said that were wrong, wrong with the plans. Everything from the fact that... Uh, if you're going to try and, and destroy these forts or neutralise these forts by naval gunpowder, uh, gunfire, gun it's got such a volume of shells. They really don't have enough shells to do it. And even if they did, that these are fire so many, they would simply throw out the gun barrel on the ships, which of course are not replaceable. And Robin Pryor also makes the point that actually, if you're using ships, um, sorry, air, air seaplanes for spotting for the artillery. They really don't have capability in 1915, as in the planes are so primitive. If you put a, a radio on board, they basically haven't got enough oomph in their range actually to take off. And all this 
is stuff that professional officers like Jackson, like Oliver, or indeed you know, more junior officers, should have been pointing out to their boss. It's the sort of thing that, to fast forward, Al Brook in the Second World War was pointing out to Churchill's Prime Minister, Prime Minister, that's a really good idea, but it worked for this these 47 different very good practical reasons. But Churchill just isn't getting that advice. And just a, a hypothetical question for you, Gary. If he had had that advice, I think he'd have listened to it. I think he possibly would, because Churchill was someone, certainly later in his life, who actually, he might be grumpy about getting advice he didn't like. He might fight against it. And he certainly would take against uh, military subordinates who he, he didn't write. But ultimately, he grumpily would get on with it. So maybe, of course, he did get advice. If we're talking about Oliver and Jackson being different characters, or Jackie Fisher had come out and out and said to Churchill what we know he was saying behind his back about the thing wasn't going to work. I suspect that Winston would have wound, wound his neck mm-hmm. in. Let's take another counterfactual as well. Say the fleet gets through the Dardanelles, arrives opposite Constantinople. What happens next? Well, Sir Edward Grey, the Foreign Secretary, rather gave the game away when he said the assumption of cabinet was the fleet shows up and it brings about a revolution, overthrows the, the, the Ottoman government, the, the Ottoman Empire drops out of the war. Well, there's no indication that that was likely to happen uh, from everything that's that, that, that we know. So I think what, like, probably fleet shows up, fires a few rounds. Is it seriously going to try and bombard an ancient cultural capital of Constantinople at a time when British propaganda is attacking the Germans for doing exactly that sort of th- thing in Belgium? My guess is not. It ends up sailing back through the Dardanelles, quite possibly through defences which have basically sprung to life, and it's it's, it's a major humiliation mm. and a major disaster. Mm. Well, all of this is in in the in the future. Let's briefly. I think we need to bring the Dardanelles bit to an end because Churchill's involvement really doesn't go very much beyond this stage. But let's just say say what happens. Of course, mm. the everything basically everything that can go wrong does go wrong uh the, they haven't sent the fleet mine sweepers down from the the north sea they've got these north sea trawlers that uh, because of the strong current running in the dardanelles can barely got the strength to get into the dardanelles themselves they are really ineffective at sweeping the mines uh the the fleet does very little damage to 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 the guns it's the mines are the problem anyway in reality mm. And on the 18th of March, uh, an Anglo-French fleet enters the Dardanelles, and in, in the course of a day's fighting, three battleships are sunk, three are badly damaged, and Turkey, to this day, quite rightly, celebrates the 18th of March 1915 as a great victory. Mm. Or put it the other way, it's a it's a, it's a it's a crushing defeat for for the mm. Allies. Once they come out of that, then Rather than calling off the entire Dardanelles fiasco, they double down on it. They do what they frankly should have done in the first place, if you're going to do it at all, which is to uh, commit troops. And that in turn brings about the landings on the Gallipoli Peninsula on the 25th of April 19, 1915. People 
often forget the the whole point of Gallipoli is to capture the peninsula in order to allow the fleet to get through into Siamara and go up to Constantinople. Well, A, as we know, it doesn't happen. B, another counterfactual, imagine it all goes swimmingly. <laughs> and, 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 and the British and the French and the Australians and the New Zealanders capture the Gallipoli Peninsula. Well, great, except they haven't cleared the Asiatic bank of the Dardanelles, which is still stuffed with minefields, with forts, with uh, with with mobile batteries. In other words, the fleet is still not being able to get through. Mm. And so Gallipoli, well, we will certainly have uh, at least one podcast on a later occasion about Gallipoli. So let's not go into, into too deeply here. But what I think we've got to say is that the, the failure, first of all, of the fleet, and then secondly, the slow motion failure of the landings at Gallipoli. So the, the troops getting ashore, but then unable to break out of the bridgeheads. All of this has a very, very damaging effect mm. on Churchill's mm. reputation. It's not the only thing that's going against him because uh, Asquith in May 1915 uh, forms a coalition with the Conservatives, with the Unionists. They already hate Churchill. And one of the prices for Churchill, uh, sorry, for, for, for the coalition is that Churchill is demoted. So he's moved out of the Admiralty. He's actually got some, he's incurred the, the wrath of some elements of the press who are running an anti-Churchill press campaign. Uh, Henry Henry Wilson, later chief of the Imperial General Staff, is also briefing against against Churchill. And Churchill is kicked into sort of a non-job as Chancellor of the uh, Duchy of, of Lancaster. And so the, one of the major short-term casualties of the Dardanelles Gallipoli exhibition is Churchill's reputation and Churchill's place in the front line of Britain's war and there's another casualty and that is Churchill's mental health and something that's that's I think we tend to forget it's often said you know Churchill had battles with with depression um some guy was a black dog as he called it and of all the there's certain events he she seems Churchill's life where this it's quite severe about of this and Gallipoli as well. He's absolutely psychologically shattered by Gallipoli. And he's there's several reasons for this. One, this goes back to something going back to. This is the first time Churchill has gambled and he's lost. And he's lost big. And a bit like a gambler who's staggered out of the casino having all their money, he's in a sort of psychological shock about this. Do with his father, I think. Now, his father, of course, gambled and lost at a similar age when he tried to resign as Chancellor of the Exchequer in the 1880s, destroyed his career, never recovered. And Churchill sees that in his future. He sees himself absolutely ruined by this. And he sees his friends start to, to not exactly vanish, but distance themselves. And Churchill's been accused of being very self-centred at this time, and some of his letters are very self-centred, a little bit of for me, why me? But let's not forget, this is a man who has suffered the most crushing psychological blow of his, of his entire life to this stage. And I'm reminded of um, Clementine Churchill, when she was speaking to Martin Gilbert, this was after Winston's death, this is the late 60s and early 70s, she was still alive, she would do interviews with Martin Gilbert. And she she was saying this, this is decades after Winston's, uh, you know, been at to do with the Dardanelles. She told Martin Gilbert the Dardanelles haunted him for the rest of his life. 
and added that in 1915, I thought he would never get over the Dardanelles. I thought he would die of grief. <laughs> so he's absolutely psychologically shattered, and, and all he does is hope and hope and hope. I hope Gallipoli goes well, and I'm somehow vindicated. So this is a very important psychological turning point Actually, for him. Absolutely, it is. There, there are two other things we want to discuss rather briefly about Churchill's First World War career. But I think it's worth finishing the, the, the Dardanelles story now, because actually Churchill bounces back from black dogging, he bounces back from, from depression. For, talk about that 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 moment. But he then sets out with a great deal of effort, vim and vigour, we might say, over the next 20 years to try and rescue not just his reputation, but the reputation of the entire Gallipoli expedition. So the Dardanelles uh, inquiry is held in 1960-1970. It produces a big report in 1917. And Churchill is very active, basically nobbling members of the commission, trying to get his own viewpoint across. And um, now the, I don't know whether you've used it. I've, I've used the minutes of the Dardanelles uh, commission, which, which is an extremely valuable source, but you can't take them all at face value, particularly not what, what Churchill's saying. And But this is the start of rehabilitation of the idea. And it never works entirely during the First War, but he carries on in the 20s and the 30s. And gradually, the the balance of opinion shifts back in favour of the Dardanelles. And of course, the obvious thing is to, is, is to uh, point to make here is that he sets up the Dardanelles, not as it was, but as it might have been if all had gone well, if everybody had followed his advice, with the Western Front, with the Somme with Passchendaele, and pretty much a, you know, a, 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 a really unreflective version of what the Western Front fight, fighting was about. And in the 20s and the 30s, people start to say, well, maybe there was a better option. Maybe the Dardanelles could have worked. And Churchill increasingly comes to be seen as the strategic genius of the First World War, because the often unspoken, sometimes actual um, uh parallel is made, or, or, or opponent, I should say, is with Hay, with Western Front strategy. And to the point that by the time that he becomes Prime Minister in May 1940, the fact that Churchill was the seen as the strategic brain behind the Dardanelles is not seen as being a bad thing. It's seen as being a good thing. He's a man of great imagination. Unlike people are saying the way that the British war effort had been run in the Second World War up to that point. So that's a Really interesting point. And I think, I mean, Chris Bell makes, I think, yeah, yeah Robin Pryor make, makes it as, as well in, in various places, that this is Churchill rehabilitating his, reputa rehabilitating his reputation, not simply to make himself feel better, but actually it has a se seriously important impact on his future prospects mm. of, return, of, of, of getting back to high office. Mm. Anyway, we'll talk about that when we come on to talking about the Second World War uh, I suspect it's going to be in our, our next episode. Mm -hmm. Right. You've mentioned Churchill has, has Black Dog um, and he it's not getting any better by the fact that he's in office, but not in power. Effectively, he's he's being ignored. He's being sniped at by 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 the, by the Tories. Um, and uh, he, he leaves government at the end of 1915. He goes off to France. And. Mm -hmm. Initially, he wants to go out and, and, and command a brigade. And in fact, Sir John French is an old friend of his, offers him a brigade. 
by the time he arrives in France at the end of 1915, Churchill uh, 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 finds that uh, French is no longer the head of Shed. He's been replaced by Sir Douglas Haig. Now, in the last episode, we mentioned that Haig had not been keen on having Churchill uh, second to his squadron of Egyptian cavalry in the Sudan campaign. And they get on a bit better by this stage, but Haig is still a bit wary. And actually, very sensibly, he says, hang on, before he gets a brigade, he's got to actually prove that he's actually can, can command in the field. Now, he has been a second lieutenant or lieutenant in the in the fourth hussars. He has been a major in the Queen's Own Oxfordshire uh, Hussars, so it's so, a so yeomanry regiment. Um, so it's even a bit of a risk to give him an infantry battalion, but he, he does. He gets the 6th Battalion Royal Scots Fusiliers, which he takes over in the plodery section of the front. So, uh, you know, so in, in, in the Ypres sector, but away a, a, a bit from, from Ypres itself. And he commands this battalion basically for the, for the next six, six months. And someone once made the point that we don't read very much about Churchill's time in command of a battalion in his own writings, but because not very much happens. Mm. So this is a period in which he's holding the line um, in, in trench warfare and not even a particularly active sector of the front at a particularly active time. So, so not much happens. Two things I'll say. And this reflects back to something I said in the last episode. You know, we talk about Churchill having us believe he has a charmed life. And I think there's something to be said perhaps he did in his uh, in his time on the Western Front. Well, come on to that in a moment. The first thing I want to say is that the 6th Royal Scots Fusiliers is, is in a pretty shabby state by this, this time. Um, the, the officers are not very keen on having this, this liberal politician, <coughs> excuse me, Voiced on them, but he immediately wins them over, partly because he's Winston Churchill is very charismatic, but also he's very pragmatic, he's very practical, he's very paternal. So basically, he has he organizes baths for the men and gets the men, you know, properly looked after and all the rest of it. And it's it's pretty clear that in, in pretty short order that Churchill turns things around in the battalion. The other thing that he does is as a very active CO. He frequently goes out on patrols into no man's land. And um, he he believes, I think, this idea that, you know, you, it stiffens morale by getting the men out and carrying out active active operations against the enemy. Well, there's a debate about that. I think you can have too much of a good thing in, in a sense. But but Churchill certainly does that. Now, another counterfactual, I think our third counterfactual of, of, of the day, and this has this bearing on this idea of Churchill having a charmed life. Now, in reality that his battalion is amalgamated by another one, in a, uh, amalgamated into an, uh, with another one, I should say, uh, in the spring of 1916. There's only one space for one colonel, and Churchill doesn't get the, the new battalion. He's had enough by that stage anyway, and he's quite happy to go back to, to the UK. Um, not many battalion commanders could actually say, well, I've, I think I've had enough of command on the Western Front at this stage. I think I'll go back home. But Churchill gets away with it. But let's just suppose that Churchill keeps command of his battalion and he takes that battalion to the Somme in the summer of 1916. Well, if Churchill behaves like Churchill always does, risk-taking, courageous, foolhardy about his own personal um, safety, What's the odds that one of the casualties, one of the fatalities of the Battle of the Somme 
is Lieutenant Colonel Winston Spencer Churchill, 6th Royal Scots Fusiliers. Churchill is killed at some point in September or October 1916, and that's the end of him. Hmm. So it may well be that Churchill <clears throat> is, uh, as he would have seen, I think, saved for what we know is going to come in 1940, his mm. position as prime minister and leader of Britain in the Second Great War by what Churchill would have seen as the hand of fate mm. that takes mm. him out of harm's way, puts him back into politics when he could so easily have been killed mm. Mm. in the Battle of the Somme. Uh, very, very powerfully made, Gary, and I'm, I'd agree with you completely. Uh, even Churchill, who you've heard in the previous episode, believed that he was far too powerful to meet such a, a, a sad end of just being picked off by a bullet on the northwest frontier. Even he later reflected that some of his experience on the Western Front, he genuinely felt as if somebody up there was watching over him. There were very close calls, uh, notably a, a meeting at a dugout where he left, and just a few minutes later, a German 5.9 inch shell flew over, hit the dugout he'd just been in and, and killed and wounded every single person inside. And uh, so there's, it, he's, he's aware, crikey, that's a, that's a close call. Um, crucially, too, it's it's probably the best thing that could happen for Churchill politically. He's He's gone out, interestingly enough, in November 1915, and there's a real suggestion he's going out to get himself killed. He's still deep in Black Dog. And what that felt like for Clementine Churchill is really reflected in her letters. You know, she's in, in, beside herself with worry. And fortunately, she, she, she had a huge role in Churchill's life, so vastly important to him. Um, she basically persuades him, look, don't, don't go out and deliberately get yourself killed. Um, which he, he changes his mind. Of course, that's not to say he can't be. But the other thing is, he, he's away from politics for six months. And he seemed to be acting very bravely. Initially, his decision to go to the trenches is a little bit lampooned, you know, ha ha, what's he doing? But then he goes out, he does six months on the front. And that's, well, okay, he's done that. And then he can leave, crucially, with honour completely intact. He's not running away from the war. And I think he's got a perfect reason to leave. He's not got a colonelcy. He's not, not going to be in charge of anything. He's going to be basically superfluous. So why not come back to politics? And that's really important, I think, for helping to rehabilitate Churchill within the war. And by the time he comes back, of course, it's just about the time for the Battle of the Somme. Battle of the Somme is raging through the latter half of 1916. And then by the end of 1916, there's another political change. And his old friend, David Lloyd George, unseats the existing prime minister. Absolutely. And we'll talk about that uh, in, in a few moments. But before we do that, I think it's worth making the point when Churchill arrives back on the home front, he's acting as a bit of a gadfly. He's, uh, as ever, he's he's not short of ideas about what should be done. And his most uh, famous contribution, I think, is a paper that he gets circulated to the cabinet somehow called Variants of the Offensive in late July 1916. Now, remember, he's he's in Parliament, but he's not in government. He's a backbencher. But, of course, he's got all strings, gets his mates to put it in. And, and this, this, this thing does actually get seen by, um, by, by, by the cabinet. Now, in this, he's he's pretty critical of what he sees, albeit from a distance, because he's back in the UK at this stage, the way that the Somme is being fought. And, of course, he's not altogether wrong about that. But later, he writes a passage, which I actually analysed in some detail in my book, Forgotten Victory, 20-odd years ago. Uh, and um, he 
this this is written written post war. He he looks back and says, well, people say, what could people have done apart from the Somme? And he looks at Cambrai in 1917, and he says, I say, this is what could have been done. Mm-hmm. And he basically says that they should have, Haig should have waited for the tanks to arrive, that they should have, you know, the tanks should have arrived en masse, that they should carry out, you know, big armoured attacks, and they would save the lives of the infantry and... Um, and 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 that would would have made a huge difference. Uh, he, uh, in fact, to, to quote Churchill directly, he described uh, the generals of 1915-17 of fighting needless and wrongly conceived operation of infinite cost, of being content to fight machine gun bullets with the breasts of gallant men, and think that that was waging war. And of course, in the attitude, in, in the atmosphere of the 1930s, that really strikes home. And of course, that helps in his rehabilitation which we'll talk about in a, a late, later podcast but you know churchill is apparently making a lot of sense at the time that people are really uh you know in, in revulsion against the way that the western front was was um, was fought however long comes sheffield in 2000 and points out uh, you know rather prosaically to quote myself um an entire book could be spent deconstructing this remarkable passage which gives a fascinating insight into the man the mind of a man who gave Britain inspiring but decidedly erratic leadership in two world wars. I'm just waiting for you know the uh, the, the brick bats from the pro-Churchillians to start coming in direction. To continue my quoting myself, it combines a blithe disregard for what was possible in 1916 with an astonishing lack of understanding of the realities of combat on the Western Front. Moreover, the success at Combray was due as much to successful use of artillery only gets a fleeting reference from Churchill as it was from tanks. Well, 20-something years on from that, I basically still would agree with that. Maybe I would tone it down a little bit. Uh, but I think what Churchill is doing in the 30s is actually taking what was possible even by 1918 mm. and projecting it back onto 1916, which, frankly, it wasn't. I mean, tanks were very, very fragile. There wasn't very m- many of them. I think only about 20 odd actually got across the start line, did any real fighting uh, at Fleur Course that 15th of September 1916 that he, that he's referring back to. But what we got here is not just Churchill actually, I think, you know, projecting back into the past. It also says something about Churchill's understanding of the importance of technology, which of course is absolutely right. But with his, back to that word, romantic view of how war could be conducted. Now, there are all sorts of criticisms we can make of the way that the British Army fights the Battle of the Somme in 1916. But the idea that there was a magic wand to be be waved, that you could actually bring in tanks and that would make a huge difference, it simply isn't isn't possible. You know, certainly tactics were pretty clumsy and and things could have been improved, but not not like that. Mm. So Churchill, I think, is showing great insight and naivety, or possibly worse. About mm. about what 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 was possible, mm. right? But and uh, into the last stage of this getting particularly marathon session on Church in the First World War, uh, Lloyd George, as you mentioned, comes to power as Prime Minister at the end of 1916. He can't bring Churchill straight back into government because there is still quite a lot of opposition to Churchill uh, in his uh, among his allies, and Lloyd George increasingly becomes, uh, as a liberal prime minister, 
uh, the prisoner of his unionists, that is, conservative allies. Mm. Uh, it's it's it becomes even more so later on, but it's but it's but to some extent it's there in 1917. But by July uh, uh, July 1917, Lloyd George thinks that he's strong enough politically to bring Churchill back into the cabinet. And so he does, even though even even at this stage, it causes a, causes a fair amount of kerfuffle. But uh, Lloyd George rides it out and he brings Churchill into government, not as a not as a cabinet minister, but as a minister of munitions. Now, I think this is a thoroughly good thing for two reasons. First of all, that actually Churchill would be a very, very good minister of munitions. But also it means that Churchill has a department to concentrate upon. He isn't in the central war cabinet where where they don't have departmental responsibilities in other words it gives churchill less scope for interfering with everybody else's jobs which is something that he's very prone to do and it really really gets up people's nose noses <laughs> and uh uh charles reppington charles court reppington a journalist who left a very said a very very useful very indiscreet published diaries which come out in in 1920 uh he writes uh, in August 1917, Winston is a different man since he returned to office. I never saw anyone so changed to such advantage in so short a time. In other words, he's got his hands back, at least in part on, 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 on the, the leaves of power. He's doing things and he proves to be really, really good about it. And uh, Rappington then says uh, a few uh, weeks later, Churchill is fairly happy about guns and shells and says that we further great rise in the supply and that new devilries are being invented to tease Huns. Finds it very difficult from the old political times and rarely meets his colleagues. He just works away all day in his office and the work keeps him from worrying about the war. But as we will see, that's not entirely true. But I think the fact that Churchill actually has a, 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 a constrained area of responsibility is actually a really good thing because actually it means he concentrates on the job in hand rather than doing everybody else's jobs for them, which mm. uh, is a is a very, very Churchillian thing thing to do. Well what does what does Churchill do? Now this is not the sort of stuff that sets the pulse racing, frankly. He reorganizes the military munitions called set up originally in the spring of 1915 under Lloyd George. Uh, so, for example, there's 50 departments. He amalgamates them into 10 departments. He sets up a, um, in, in effect, a sort of munitions cabinet, which he brings together his, his leading advisors. Another example of how he has quite a, a collective approach to, to decision making. And he does things which are significant at the time and actually also significant in terms of what is to come in the Second World War. So he has to deal with, with big business. And he has to deal with organised labour, indeed, some unorganised labour. So Walter Layton, who's a young Cambridge economist who becomes Churchill's right-hand man, Minister of Munitions, says this, that his special contribution was to bring discipline and organisation to the ministry. His memos stimulated the minds of the staff and kept them on their toes. And this, I think, is, 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 is really important. But so is dealing with, with the trade unions. So, for example, he discovers that the, 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 the unions are um, they're, they're worried about the amount of dilution going on. Now, now, now you, you, you must have come across this. Term. This, this idea is that, that uh, whereas there were strict demarcations in 
what work workers could do before the war. So a skilled worker could only make this particular widget. Uh, a semi-skilled worker could make part of a widget. An unskilled worker could sweep the floors or something like that. Um, during the war, there's a lot of this demarcation is done away with. It's known as, 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 as dilution. And the trade unions go along with it, basically because it helps the war effort, but also because the government is throwing them various goodies in recompense. And Churchill, what, one of the things he does is actually introduce uh, a 12% rise in pay for skilled workers getting very, very unhappy, uh, which actually then fuels inflation in the economy. But, but that, that's a different story. But he's learning how to cope with trade unionists and, and labour. Now, he's had some, some work in this, in, in this field uh, before the war, because he's, remember, he's a radical reformer alongside David Lloyd, Lloyd George. But this is really, really, I, really, I think he learns how to do it under conditions of war. Now, let's park this for a moment, but we'll come back to this in 1940, when as Prime Minister, again, you know, to project forward a bit, one of the first things he does is to get Britain's biggest trade union boss, Ernest Bevin, head of the Transport General Workers Union, and he makes him Minister of Labour and National Service. So classic example of uh, getting a, a, a poacher and turning in, him into a gamekeeper. I think, I think this has actually been underplayed in the literature. Churchill learns many of the skills that can serve him very well as Prime Minister in the Second World War and running a total war economy as Minister of Munitions in 1917-1918. And of course... Churchill is the man who supplies Haig's army with the shells, with the tanks, with the guns that they need to win the war. Uh, do you want to hear a quote from Haig about, about Churchill? Go on. Why not? OK, well, earlier I, I read this quote from, from um, Reppington saying that Churchill stayed in the office all day long. He didn't. He would frequently travel out to the, to the Western Front, sometimes by aeroplane, which was quite quite daring at that at that stage. And he contrived always to be where action was going on. And he 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 arrives at GHQ in September 1917, so June the third battle beat, June Passchendaele. And Haig's diary writes this: Mr. Winston Churchill arrived this forenoon and visit Messines. Enemies started shelling the hill with a few 5.9 shells. Winston ran down the hill in such a hurry that he forgot his hat. And he's always getting, you know, within shellfire. He's always getting somewhere close to hand. And, and he's mm. continuing to, to push his luck, basically. Mm. Uh, so mm. despite the fact that he, he legs it and leaves his hat behind, he's a man who's, who's not afraid to get into, in, 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 into the front line and, and, and to get, get shot up. Now, the one thing that Haig and Churchill do disagree on is in that uh, in 1918, Churchill produces a paper which he sends to Haig and to others, basically saying, this is the munitions uh, uh, um, picture. We're going all out for a major push in 1920. And in 1919, the army is going to be drastically cut in size and you're going to have to cut your uh, 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 coat according to the cloth. Um, just uh, about Churchill in the ministry as well. I think just to really emphasize the point you've made that the really important factor is Churchill was away from really key 
um, strategic decision making. And so he's not drawn into some of the, the so-called Easterner versus Westerner debates. He's so um, myopic about just producing arms and armaments. He's in the perfect position. You can get all his energy, all his resourcefulness, all his drive. Uh, but you've put it in a place where he's, he's not going to then turn up and say, you know, I say Lloyd George, I've got a brilliant idea, we should do this, and get into Lloyd George's ear and start persuading him for something else. So whether partially that's through accident, because Lloyd George doesn't think Churchill's politically acceptable in the war cabinet. He's very, Lloyd George is very reliant on conservatives. Conservatives still haven't forgiven Churchill for betraying them a decade earlier. Um, possibly it's also because Lloyd George, he likes Churchill, but at the same time, he knows Churchill's such a wild element. Yeah, so yeah. really important for Churchill's long-term viability of a politician that he is not closely involved in, in decision-making, strategic guiding in this stage. And do you get the sense that Churchill's frustrated by this, simply knuckle down and get on with it? As far as I can tell, he just knuckles down and gets on with it. He yeah. he enjoys having the, the power he's got. He, I, remember he, I can't remember the exact quote, but he compares it to uh, like riding a giant elephant. And it can you know, walk along. It's got the power to pick up a tree and move it out of its way. And he's, he's got a great vista in front of him. He enjoys it, I think. It's a, a big, powerful ministry. And I think, too, he feels like he's contributing something really significant to yeah. the war. And, and so he feels like he's involved. And, of course, he, he is. So so this, this munitions plan, which I'll come back to in, in a moment, um, there's a rather artificial debate that was launched, oh, gosh, 20 years ago, maybe 30 years ago now, by a historian called Tim Travers about whether there's this clash in the high command in 1918 uh, between, you know, man-powered centred approach and mechanical centred approach. In other words, you know, is it going to be old-fashioned infantry armies or is it going to be tanks and, and guns and what have you? Actually, I don't really think that's much of a debate but de- 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 debate at all. Uh, but Churchill is doing, is, is doing wonders in producing uh, vast amounts of munitions. Of course, uh, John Bourne, Professor John Bourne, friend and colleague of us both, uh, came up with a phrase some years ago that in 1917-18, Britain was, particularly 1918, Britain was fighting a rich man's war. Uh, in other words, in 100 days from July to November 1918, Britain had effectively unlimited supplies of shells, of guns, of chemical munitions, of bombs you name it and of course they didn't come from any did, didn't come from from, from 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 nowhere and and churchill had a had a major role in actually ramping up the production in 1917-1918 i would go as far as to say that churchill's greatest contribution towards if i put the defense of the role in the 20th century next to his job as prime minister 1940 to 1945 is his role as military munitions in 1970-1918 Really gets a write-up. I mean, some specialist historians might make, make, make this point, but almost doesn't come at all into the the popular conception of what Churchill did. But I think this is so important, and Churchill's not the only man involved in this, but but he is really significant. Mm. And the one thing that Britain is running short of in 1918, of course, is men. Hence, Churchill's uh, paper of of 1918, basically saying the army is effectively going to be divided, going to be cut cut in half. 32 divisions, I think, that Hague is all he's going to have, have to, to, to play with uh, in, 19, in, 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 in 1919. Well, when uh, Hague receives this copy of this paper from, um, from Churchill, basically saying it's all going to be dedicated to the 
the great struggle in 1920. Uh, Haig writes on it. Uh, you, you can see this in, in his own, own handwriting, written in sort of sort of blue crayon in, in the copy in the National Library of Scotland. What rubbish! Who will last until 1920? Only America. And of course, on this occasion, Haig was right and Churchill was wrong, but only by the production of vast amounts of munition uh, is Haig able to be proof right that the, the victory is there for the taking in 1918, and Churchill plays an enormous role in that. Mm-hmm. So that's 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 wrap up now. We've 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 had got on for for quite a long time. So Churchill has a a very mixed record in the First World War. So he starts well by not allowing the fleet to disperse in July, July 1914. Uh, Antwerp, there's a sort of big question marker about it. Not so much what he did, but the way he behaved while doing it. Gallipoli, well, I've on record as I think it's a disaster. It was never going to work. It's certainly never going to work under the conditions uh, that are prevailing in 1915. Church, I think, is poorly served by his naval, naval advisors, but he pays a terrible price for it, both in terms of his career and, as you've pointed out, in terms of his, his, his mental health. He spends a, a not particularly glamorous, but you know could have been absolutely critical time on the Western Front commanding battalion. He could easily have been killed. Um, fate ordained that he was not to be, but you know it, it could easily have happened. And then he comes back into government plays an incredibly productive role, ironically, for which he's received very little credit, at least in the mm. popular literature uh, he, he has, has, has among academic historians. And Churchill, of course, in spite of his role as Minister of Munitions, and in, um, we'll talk about this in, in, in the next episode, he's back into the highest levels of government at the end of 1918, after the Kharkiv election, He's still a bit damaged. It's a bit of a bit, bit of damaged goods, at least as the mm. public's concerned. His First World War career, particularly his involvement with Gallipoli, is something which will dog him for years to come. And he never quite overcomes this idea that Winston's a maverick. You can't entirely trust him. That he's war mad. He's 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 he's, he's balmy about fighting. And that's, mm. that's a reputation mm. he carries right up until the beginning of the Second World War. Mm. Any last thoughts from you? Just just two, really, both related to what we've been talking about. Just to echo what you've just said, he comes out of the war with this reputation that's linked to Antwerp, which is, is a big thing in, in the 1930s, Antwerp, and, and of course Gallipoli. And I'm reminded of an evening standard cartoon, which portrayed Winston as an incompetent huntsman who'd gone looking for big cats, but he's only shot feral moggies and there's, there's this incompetent huntsman and he's surrounded by his, what, what were considered in the early 20s his four greatest bungles. Uh, one is the siege of Sydney Street in 1911 where a Latvian anarchist jewel thief gang was holed up in Sydney Street in London. There was a shootout and Churchill went down as Home Secretary to take personal charge. It reflected very complete poorly. Complete wearing on top hat. Complete wearing top hat and ordering people around. Then the, the other theory are the Antwerp expedition, Gallipoli, and also the Allied intervention into Russia, which we haven't covered, but Churchill presses very hard for. And I think that cartoon really, it's actually by David Lowe, who, of course, are going to draw so many iconic cartoons of the Second World War, captures how people see Winston. He aims for the stars, 
but sometimes he ends up in the gutter instead. And so he's somebody who's, who's undoubtedly brilliant, but perhaps that brilliance denotes a certain unreliability and instability about him. And uh, and that's the situation, that's how he's viewed, of course, at the end of the First World War. And the final point is, is just something to pick up on, which is Douglas Hay claiming Winston Churchill runs away, and although he doesn't say this explicitly, runs away in a sort of frightened state. He's running away so quickly he's abandoned his hat. Can I just say I don't believe that happened? If we know everything about Winston, one thing he's not afraid of is gunfire and explosions. I, I think the probably the opposite would have been the case. Somebody would have had to drag him away. And I don't actually believe that that happened quite the way Dougie um, may have described it. Discuss for a future episode, perhaps. Well, <laughs> on that bombshell, uh, yeah. I, I fear yeah. we, we, we may have uh, tried our listeners' patience slightly much by having quite a long episode there's a lot to say about him and so um, we'll leave you now and we'll see you next time for the third instalment of Winston Churchill at War so it's goodbye from me Professor Gary Sheffield and goodbye from me Dr Spencer Jones.